you heard it when Dwayne read, but Genesis 27 paints a vivid picture of dysfunctional people and a dysfunctional family. As we read through it, in many ways, it feels like a prehistoric biblical version of the Springer show. It makes daytime soap operas look like child's play. Yes, suspense building, corruption emerging from every character at every turn. There's layers upon layers, and, and none of them are pretty. It's cringeworthy at times. It's more cringy than Michael Scott leading empathy training. It's just difficult to read. And so this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to think of this sermon a bit like a blank coloring page. Different, I know. And what I want to do is I want to take the first two minutes and just sort of sketch the outline of what the picture will look like. And then with the beef of our time, when we start coloring in between the lines and see the picture come to, to life. We'll do that with a little character analysis of each of these characters here. And then at the very end, what I want to do is I want to zoom out and then see the picture that we've just drawn and colored, and I'll wait to give you even the, the main idea until the very end. It's a little bit different than how we usually structure that, so I don't want you looking for the notes and wondering, did I miss it? <laughs> um, but but that, that's kind of the approach that we'll take. Okay, so, so let's sketch this outline briefly. The title of the sermon you see is Grace for the Dysfunctional. Grace for the Dysfunctional. And so as we're sketching the outline, kind of getting a skeleton here, what we see is that in this story, dysfunction is always deep and it's always complicated. It's always deep, it's always complicated. When we're talking about dysfunctional situations, there's always more than meets the eye. Someone in the situation always thinks they are justified. And getting to the, the actual bottom of what's going on is always more convoluted than you imagine. If you've ever had to navigate deep relational conflict between a couple of people, you know this to be the case. It's important we recognize this kind of dysfunction runs deeper in our own hearts than we care to admit. It's deep and it's complicated. Here's the second part of that skeleton that we need to see at the outset. Deep dysfunction requires external help. Yes, it's, it's deep and it's complicated, but it requires external help. So with a relationship off the rails, you know that you're going to need outside help in the form of a counselor. Or with the genetic dysfunction, you know that you'll need a whole host of outside help in the form of medical treatments. With a dysfunctional nation, say Nazi Germany, for example, you'll need outside help in the form of the Paris Peace Treaty. With a dysfunctional business team, you're going to need outside help in the form of a consultant. Right? So to recognize that there is a deep dysfunction means that I recognize I need external help. I can't fix this myself. And part of the dysfunction that we all experience is we think, oh, no, I can get this figured out. And you're saying, no, that's the first sign that you've misunderstood what's going on here. You need external help here. All right, so, so those two points kind of frame the, the skeleton of, of what we're, we're talking about here. And so I want to get busy coloring between the lines and kind of getting the picture in full color so we can see what's happening. And, and like I said, this is kind of the, the beef of the time, and we'll do a little character analysis. So let's start with the dad in the story, Isaac. We'll call him Isaac the Idolater. Isaac the Idolater. Maybe you're somewhat new to the Bible and you're not familiar with this term idolater or idolatry. It's certainly not something we're frequently using in the 21st century. What does exactly that mean? What's that archaic term? Well, if you go back to the Ten Commandments, 
In Exodus chapter 20, the, the very first one is simply, you shall have no other gods before me. And so to have an idol or to commit idolatry or to be an idolater is simply this. It's to have anything that's more important to you than God, something you've placed ahead of him. You might say it's anything that absorbs your heart or your imagination that you dream about, you're drawn to more than God. That's, that's idolatry. That's an idol that you may have. You may be an idolater there. And Isaac's idolatry is seen in going against the word of God and trying to give the blessing to Esau. He knew he shouldn't do that, but he did try to do that. So if, if you've got your copy of God's word open, I, I hope you still do, let's look back at verse one of chapter 27. Here's what we read. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, uh, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow. Go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. He tries to give the blessing to Esau even though he shouldn't. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, we, we talked about the birthright a few weeks ago, and now we're into the blessing. Are those the same? Are they different? They're different. You want to think about it this way. The birthright that Esau gave up for the cup of red stew is a bit like a natural blessing that comes to the firstborn son. Natural privileges, maybe, is, is a better term there, okay? The blessing, however, is invoking divine promises to come onto this son and to his offspring, so if the first is natural privileges, the second is a divine promise of blessing to come. You see that in verse 28. If you'll drop way down, you just see that God is being invoked here. Start of verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven. That's where they're giving the blessing. It comes from God as opposed to a natural, um, a natural privilege that's given there. And God had clearly told Isaac and Rebekah that Jacob would receive the blessing, but Isaac ignores this. He wants to give it to Esau. And beyond knowing the prophecy, Isaac also knows that his son Esau is marked by wickedness. He's ruled by his, his belly in selling the birthright because he wants this stew. He took many wives from pagan nations. He made life incredibly bitter and difficult for his parents. And so from this side of the story, we're left looking at Isaac as he's trying to go against what God has said and ignoring his son's wickedness and saying, Isaac, what in the world are you thinking? Like, you know you shouldn't do this, man. The question will kind of linger for a moment. But while Isaac was old and physically blind, one of the things that we're starting to see unfold here is that his idolatry had made him spiritually blind as well. He'd been blinded by the idol of pleasure. He loved the food that his son could bring him. We know from the very beginning, that's why he loved Esau more. And here he says, oh, come and bring me what I love the most. I'm a connoisseur of this kind of food, of this venison, of this wine that you'll bring me. And he'd overlook all sorts of things he shouldn't overlook because he's being governed by the idol of pleasure, in this case, the food that he loves. But I also think he's being blinded by cultural expectations, where it was expected that you would bless the firstborn son. And everybody around is thinking, of course you have to bless the firstborn. Seems totally countercultural to bless the, the younger son, the weaker son, 
the one with smooth skin, who's not a man's man. He's a mama's boy. You're really gonna go bless him like that? You see how culturally that is going against the grain to do what God has called him to do. You're seeing Isaac being governed then by his own personal idols and the idols of the culture around. And yet somehow in the midst of it, in the midst of it, Hebrews 11 gives us a picture that we wouldn't expect in saying that the blessing given in some way was marked by faith. It's a complex picture of who Isaac is. I think we have up on the screen uh, Hebrews 11 chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 20. Do we have that slide there? Here we go. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So somehow this blessing is marked by faith, even as it, we see that Isaac is entirely mixed up and going against what God has said. So I think the point that we need to see in Isaac is this. Yes, he's a man of faith. There's no doubt about that. But he also had major blind spots. He had major idolatry in his life as well. And so we see in Isaac this sort of idolatry cocktail of sorts. It's a mixed drink that's made up of the ingredients of the cultural norms you start to pour in and the personal pleasures that he's idolized. And when you mix those two ingredients, you get an absolutely deadly combination. And it's easy to see it in his life, but this happens all around us today. This happens in the church. Right? When you think of the area of sexuality, you say, Justin, we've, we've, we've stayed married and we've fought for that, but yeah, I, I'd probably tolerate some lust and a little bit of porn over on the side when things get stressful. That's how I deal with things. And it's, I mean, we're staying together, but everybody's doing it. That's, that's the cultural norm, and it sort of helps take the edge off a little bit. Is it really that big of a deal? God says it is. Matthew 5, 28, whoever looks lustfully upon a woman has committed adultery in his heart, Jesus says. Hebrews 12, we would read that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. These things matter greatly to God. But when we take the cultural norms of what everybody says is okay and personal pleasure of what makes us feel a little better, and you put those together, just like Isaac, you're getting a deadly combination in your life. Or perhaps you don't think about that area of life, you think about evangelism. I saw a survey from Barna come out recently that said that 47% of millennials think it's a sin to evangelize. 47%. Man, and I don't say that to dunk on millennials in any way. I am a millennial, all right? But to recognize what's maybe acceptable in the church that ought not be. And I think there's probably a lot of you here in the room, perhaps online watching, that'll hear and see a stat like that and say, man, I knew it. These snowflakes are exactly what's wrong with the world, exactly what's wrong with the church. If you're feeling that way a bit, let me just remind you that we reproduce who we are, not what we know. And I think there's a lot of people in the world that are opposed to evangelism because they've never seen it modeled. So let's be slow to throw stones at others and quick to evaluate if our walk matches our talk. Maybe you're unsure of evangelism yourself. Is it really right of me to impose my beliefs on somebody else? To speak difficult truth to them? Can't I be a faithful Christian in privacy, Justin? No, you can't. It's not what God has called us to. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to deserve everything I've commanded you. Romans 10, 14, how will they believe on him of whom they've never heard? The call is clearly to go and proclaim the gospel. 
And to say that we're gonna preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words is a little bit like saying, feed the hungry always and if necessary, use food. It just doesn't make any sense. But when you take the cultural norms of that idol and the things that make you more comfortable in conversation and pour those together into the same cocktail, you get a deadly combination. Isaac saw it in his day and we see it in ours as well. Maybe you apply that just to the local church in general. right? Our culture idolizes the individual. It despises authority structures. And so when it comes to church, we say, man, you just wanna kind of watch from home, do the virtual thing, don't actually commit to love these people and be with them, do life together with them, that's okay, man, you do you. Never mind that Hebrews 10, 24 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. It's not a new thing. Thousands of years has been going on. We wanna set it aside. Man, you don't like the vision of the church, where things are going, don't know what those pastors are up to. What do we say then? Well, that's okay, just find a new one. Or a different nonprofit that you like a little better, give to them. Never mind that Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's against a cultural norm and it certainly cuts against our pleasure. But when we take the, the idols of our culture and what we personally like and makes us feel good and we pour those together in that same drink, it is a deadly combination and we feel justified in disregarding the word of God just like Isaac did. So friend, let me just caution you from the life of Isaac that you can be a Christian and you can walk by faith and still have areas of idolatry in your life that you need to repent of. He's the first character, Isaac the idolater. Let's move to the second one, Rebecca the manipulator. Rebecca the manipulator. If your copy of God's word is open, look back at verse five with me. We'll read through verse 10. Here's what we read. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. As the story unfolds and we catch some more layers here, the levels of family dysfunction are somewhat staggering. You hear in the text it says Esau is his son and Jacob is her son. They've, they've divided themselves already. And don't gloss over what Rebecca has done here. She's working a plan, manipulating a plan to lie to her senile husband and then to use his handicap against him so that she can defraud one son and orchestrate the moral failure of her favored son. And this wasn't like a one-time moment of weakness slipped up. This is the trajectory of her life. This is months and years of planning the habit of how she lives. And friend, I just want to say to you this morning, if, if you may be prone to manipulation, a bit like Rebecca is, you likely know it already. Please stop. Don't keep going like that. Look, I, I know that it can sort of happen without even really trying. 
Like you can start to see connections. Well, if I drop this hint here and that hint there and push this way here, then I can get this outcome. And it seems like maybe it's helping in some tough situations, but it's not. For Rebecca, this would bring decades of division and heartbreak and sorrow to her family. So learn from her and see the outcome, not just what looks good right now. The reality is Rebecca is showing her spiritual blindness and she doesn't even recognize it. She's become blind to her own blindness. This shows us, if I go back to the very beginning at the the skeletal points we were making, the deep dysfunctionality that's here, how complex it is, the blinding effects of of sin in all of us. It'd be wise to consider that in our own lives. Author Paul Tripp would say it this way. I think it's on the screen. Spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are blind to their own blindness. They are blind but think that they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of him than he does. He thinks he sees and is unaware of the powerfully important things in his heart that he absolutely does not see at all. It's almost as if God gives us the body of Christ. So as we strive together and we have other people helping us to grow in holiness, we grow through relationships that the body in a context of love, marked by grace and the gospel, that we can start to see some of these areas of blindness and grow together through them. But Rebecca, like Isaac, isn't only bad. If we try and get in her head, I think we can see pretty quickly why this would seem like a good path for her. So if we go back to the beginning of Genesis, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, the fall of mankind, the curse comes, and the promise of Genesis 3.15 is through the offspring of the woman that salvation would come, redemption would come, that Satan would be crushed. We're looking for this, this serpent crusher, the snake crusher. Where is he? And so each time that these women get pregnant, they're wondering, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And finally, in in Abram's life, in chapter 12 of Genesis, some 2,000 years after the fall in the garden, God intervenes with a promise. The promised child is coming from you, Abraham. Now, Rebecca knew the story well. She's married to the promised child, Isaac. And not only does she know that, she knows that the blessing is promised to her younger son, Jacob. Can't you just see her then as, as, as the blessing almost goes to Esau, her grumbling, mumbling, my stupid husband is about to do what? God said it's supposed to go to the other one. She's actually right in seeing that Isaac is living in utter foolishness and about to make a major mistake. And so she says, I have to intervene. I have no choice but to get involved in the matter. But let it remind you, friends, that good intentions only go so far. Yes, she was concerned for the gospel, in a sense. She was concerned for the plan of redemption. In today's world, you'd say she was the most gospel-centered person in the whole family. Right? But she was deceived. Because she had good intentions, she thought that her actions were justified. It's not hard to see throughout history how that's a major problem. Peter cut off a dude's ear for Jesus, thinking it was justified. 
You could see people on the left that may compromise on sexual ethics in the name of Jesus, thinking it's justified. And you could see people on the right that would storm the Capitol for Jesus, thinking it's justified. And Rebecca here may not be storming the Capitol for Jesus, but she's storming the kitchen and raiding Esau's bedroom and ransacking Isaac's deathbed in the name of Jesus, and she thinks it's justified. You see, at the core of her manipulation is a heart that doesn't actually trust God. She's saying, if I do the right thing, the bad guys will win. Therefore, the ends justify the means, and it's okay for me to sin if it's part of a good purpose. You see how that could happen to her. How do we do that? Parents, let me, let me talk to you for a second. Maybe you think, man, if I turn off the devices at 8 p.m. so that we can lead in family worship, it's gonna drive my kids to hate God and hate the Bible. And I know that maybe I should lead them, I should tell them no in some of these ways, but the outcome would be really bad from it, and so I'm just gonna kind of let them go, and we're not gonna lead in family worship here. No, parents, your kids need discipline from you. They need to be led in family worship. And there's probably gonna be days where they say things about how much they hate you. That's pretty normal parenting, I think. Good parenting, if you're disciplining them, they're going to resort to nasty words. Lead them. Don't tap out just because it's difficult. Or maybe in the area of our finances. You say, Justin, I can't give right now. I wouldn't be able to pay my bills. I couldn't provide for my family. The New Testament says that would make me worse than an unbeliever. So I'm gonna disobey what God has said because I think it's a better outcome to go this way. Friend, I'm not saying how much you need to give. Certainly that varies in every season of life for probably every family here, every individual here. But I do know that Jesus spoke more on money than he did on heaven and hell. And so when we feel authorized based on our circumstances to disregard what he has said because we think we see a better outcome, that we have fallen into the exact same error as Rebecca. We're manipulating our circumstances because we think we know better than God. And maybe worst of all, in all these scenarios, I think we're all tempted, we're prone towards manipulating how people see us. Because if they saw us as we really are, the dysfunction that's really in our lives, it might harm the name of Jesus, that a Christian could think that thing or say that thing or do that thing. Friend, let me just tell you, no, Honest confession does not harm the name of Jesus. What it does is it proves that his grace is greater than your dysfunction. But when you try to hide it, what you're functionally saying is God's grace is not greater than this sin. It's not covered by the blood. That one's not. Friends, grace enables confession to God and to others, knowing that our righteousness is not in ourselves, but it's in him. Rebecca didn't know that yet. She's Rebecca the manipulator. Let's go to our third character, Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the deceiver. We'll pick up in verse 11. Here's what we read. But Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Do you hear what he said and what he didn't say there? There's not a single concern for the morality of the situation. 
mere self-preservation. I might get in trouble here. Well, yeah, you should. And you shouldn't do it. But that's nowhere on his mind. He and his mom execute their scheme. Jacob wears Esau's clothes, brings the food that Rebekah has made, just as Esau would make it, and Jacob enters into this fourfold lie. Verse 19, he says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. That's lie number one. And then continuing in verse 19, lie number two, he says, I've done as you told me. Verse three, or verse three, lie three, verse 20, he says, because the Lord has granted me this success. Why four, verse 24, Isaac says, are you really my son Esau? He says, yes, I am. Over and over, absolutely brazen to invoke God's name as the source of blessing in his deceptive scheme. And don't miss this. This is Jacob, the marker of the righteous line, the line of the Messiah. And maybe like Rebecca, this is sort of how he excuses himself. If I don't take these steps, God's word won't be fulfilled, and this is what it means to execute God's will right now, to lie and go against what he said. But still, Isaac is seeing in his son Jacob just how dysfunctional sin makes us, how blinding it is. I wonder if we would just try to imagine for a moment if we saw this kind of spiritual perversity in our own day, what would that look like? Imagine a pastor cheating on his wife and saying to her, I'm so thankful that God's brought me together with this other woman. Clearly he's blessing our relationship. Would you join me in praying that we would be unified? Imagine a Christian employee at a nursing home having $100,000 in unsecured debt. So she steals the diamond ring from the wedding band of a senile patient and goes to community group that night and says, Praise God, he's miraculously provided for a large part of my debt. Can we sing the doxology now? Guys, there should be blood boiling anger when you think about that sort of situation. Absolutely reprehensible. And yet this is what's happening here. It's nauseating. We see in Jacob somebody with a moral compass so screwed up, it's a wonder he can make his way back to his own tent. He is totally lost sight of reality. And yet, somehow, this is the son that gets blessed by God. Look at verse 27 with me. Here's the blessing that his father Isaac gives to him. He says, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. That's not the smell I got when I read his life. <laughs> Let's keep going. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And we're left wondering how does this sleazeball imposter get chosen to be in the line of Jesus? I read one commentator that, this week who looked down and said, in the, the family tree of Jesus, one would wonder, how does this unsightly gnarl get to be there? That's what Jacob seems to be, an unsightly gnarl. Wouldn't God select smooth, pre-treated lumber? Not 
the sky. Friend, let it remind you that God's grace is never based on your goodness. Do not believe that lie. So we're left with the picture of Jacob as this brazen deceiver who's somehow blessed. He's supposed to bring a blessing to all the nations, but only seems concerned right now with self-preservation. What a paradox. He's our third character. Let's go to our fourth character. Esau the murderer. Esau the murderer. So Esau comes in from hunting. He realizes the deception that's taken place, the lost blessing, and he asks his dad for a blessing, and all he gets is an anti-blessing, a curse of sorts. We'll pick up here in verses 39 and 40 if you look back at Genesis 27. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you go rest, grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. We read it, and it's an utterly heartbreaking story. Esau longs for his father's blessing and would never receive it. And for all of this guy's faults, and there were a lot of them, in this particular case, he sort of looks like an unjust victim. We see him weeping bitterly. And while he would later reconcile with Jacob, we have no knowledge of any further conversation with his dad ever. This appears to be the last one. What a heartbreaking tale. So how does Esau respond to the stolen blessing and the subsequent curse that he receives? Look at verse 41 of Genesis 27. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she, so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Catch that? What did Rebekah say? Where does he comfort himself? What's his place of peace and solace? His happy place? Planning to murder his brother Jacob. He goes home and dreams about how he'll do it. Man, maybe in some way that describes you this morning. Angry days, sitting at work, dreaming about how you would take someone out. Maybe you say, Justin, that's not me. I would never do that. Wouldn't think that way. And maybe you wouldn't. But maybe when that person is mentioned, and you know who that person is, you are utterly gripped with anger in your heart. It's paralyzing. It controls you. Your blood pressure is spiking right now as I'm talking, and you're thinking about the things they've done to you. 1 John 3 Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. So maybe you're more like Esau than you thought. Matthew 5, whoever hates his brother is liable to the judgment. Of course Esau thought he was justified in his rage. And of course we have reasons that we think we're justified in our rage. You can just see Esau saying, my father is such a stupid old man. My mother's hated me forever. 
I know my brother thinks he's going to rule over me, but I'll take care of that SOB. You just see it, 4K. And mind you, this is the same Esau that lost his birthright a few years ago, or a few chapters ago, because he was foolish. And he seemed to be totally unconcerned with the things of God, going his own way, making life bitter for his family. And the opening of chapter 28, he resolves to take more wives from pagan lands going against what God has commanded in order to spite his family. It's not just that he thought they were beautiful. In fact, he doesn't say they were beautiful. It's just that if this makes mom and dad more angry, more upset, makes their life harder, then that's absolutely the step I'm gonna take. He's angered by his sin. He's angered by the sins of others. And so what's his solution? More sin. This will fix it. And so we get to the end of our character study and we recognize that everything here is icky. There's nobody to emulate. In fact, you want to run away from every character. You sure hope your kids aren't hanging out with them. But somehow, and actually quite shockingly, at the beginning of chapter 28, there's another blessing that's given to Jacob. We don't have categories for how this is supposed to work. It doesn't make sense. Look at verse 3 of chapter 28. This is the blessing of Abraham, the promise to Abraham in chapter 12, reaffirmed to Jacob here in 28. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. What? What? The final blessing be given to Jacob completes us coloring in our coloring page. And it lets us zoom out to now see the picture on the page that we've just drawn. The darkness of selfish, sinful humanity is everywhere. And one way to read this passage is to put the glasses on and see the moral guide in this. Don't be angry like Esau. Don't deceive like Jacob. Don't be a manipulator like Rebecca. Don't bend to the cultural pressures like Isaac did. But friends, that is absolutely the legalistic reading that you ought to reject. The Bible is not merely saying, do better than those losers. To do that is to put yourself at the middle of the Bible, saying, here's how I'm supposed to be better. It assumes you can just clean up your act and, and improve a little bit. It assumes a shallow view of human sinfulness. It assumes our problem is a lack of willpower. Friends, the narrative is here to show us the depth of our dysfunction how complex our dysfunction is. It's not just the patriarchs, it's us. It's you. It's me. And if you're tracking with me, if you're taking it seriously, there has to be at least an ounce in you that sort of fights against that. You're like, yeah, I know I got some dysfunction, but I'm not quite like that character. That has to be in every human heart. But is it the right way to understand what's happening here? 
Because maybe in a legalistic, technical, moralistic sense, that may be true. You might be just a touch better. But imagine that I'm, I'm standing right down there on the floor, and there's an NBA player that's come to visit us today, and he stands on the stage, and we're going to have a leaping contest. And the winner is the one that gets closest to the ceiling. Of course he's going to win. It's not a competition. But it turns out after the fact that you misunderstood the rules. The only winner of this leaping competition is the one who can leap in a single jump and land on the moon. That's the picture of us trying to strive by our righteousness and get to God. You say, yeah, he could jump higher. And yeah, he had a better start. And he's way closer to the ceiling than I would have been. But when you look at it from the moon's perspective and look down, say, yeah, it makes precious little difference that you are seven feet ahead of that guy. You are both just as lost, just as far away, with no hope of getting there on your own. To read this narrative as don't be like them, be better, is to act like your effort can get you to heaven. And if the point were just to clean up your act a little bit, you could lift some proverbial weights. You could go on some strength training and you could jump a little higher. But that's not the point. What's the point of the narrative? That God's grace relentlessly pursues and transforms dysfunctional people like Jacob. It relentlessly pursues and transforms dysfunctional people like me. It relentlessly pursues and transforms dysfunctional people like you. God's holiness is so high and our dysfunction, our sinfulness so deep that nothing short of sheer grace, the external source, can help us at all. We're not looking for behavior modification here, clean up our act by 2%. We need utter transformation to be made new into the image of Christ that only happens by grace. Don't miss this in the narrative here. That the dysfunction we see there is so deep that it reminds and strengthens us that no dysfunction in you is too deep or too bad for the grace of God to break in and change your life. And we're tempted to think that there are parts of our lives that are too bad that we can't reveal, we can't talk about it. Friend, no, he knows all of your dysfunction. He took it all to the cross. The dark corners of your heart that you don't know about, he does, and he's known about them forever. And it was all finished upon the cross. Every single last one of them. So you can bring your mess to him without fear, knowing that grace has covered it. And you can confess your mess without airbrushing the details to a trusted brother or sister, knowing that your righteousness is not in yourself, but in Christ. And to the extent that I'm unwilling to talk about that to God and to others, it shows that I'm trusting in myself, not in his righteousness. Because at the cross of Calvary, do you know what Jesus did? He took the curses that were pronounced on Esau. He was kicked out to the barren land, away from the city. And as Esau wept bitterly over the curse that he got, Jesus would bitterly cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Relationship with the Father severed. But he went further than Esau. He didn't just take the curses, he did it in order to deliver the blessing to people like you and like me who have behaved like Jacob. 
and bring you hope and eternal life, although you deserve none of it, he would bring it to you. The question simply then is, will you accept his grace and will you live in his grace? Well, if you're not a Christian, it's real simple. You just say, Jesus, my sin and my dysfunction is deeper than I want to admit. It's deeper than I probably know. And I know I need an external source that is your perfect life and your gruesome death on the cross and your resurrection to new life. That's what I need to forgive my sins and give me a relationship with you and a hope of heaven. You ask him for that and he will save you this morning. And if you're a Christian this morning, it's real simple. Will I live in grace? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, will you look there and see him on the cross who made an end to all your sin? Will you remember that him, the sinless Savior, because he died, your sinful soul can be counted free because God the just would look on him and be satisfied and pardon you? Hallelujah. This is grace for the dysfunctional. May it ever be so to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are amazed by your grace. She would save a wretch like Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, us. That our dysfunctionality would not push you away but that you would pursue us all the harder, that your grace would be relentless in pursuit. God, I pray right now for the person who's fighting your grace, telling themselves they don't need you, or their sin's not that bad, or they've got it under control, or they've managed it. I pray your spirit would break into their heart right now, that they would throw themselves on grace, cry out to you, They would not live by the flesh, thinking that they can lift some weights and jump a little higher and clean up their act. We know that's impossible. But they would throw themselves onto your grace and trust wholly in you and experience newness of life that only you can give. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.